You're listening to a sermon podcast from Church at the Gates, where we desire for real people to meet the real Jesus and experience real change. We pray that God might use the next few minutes to draw you closer to Him. I need you to use your imagination for me. I need you to picture it's 585 B.C. You guys there? If there are dinosaurs, you're too far back. 585 B.C., you're in Jerusalem. It's a walled city, not very large, maybe, maybe just about the size of downtown Missoula, maybe a little bit larger. Outside the city walls, the Babylonian horde awaits. It's early in the year, and they've brought their siege engines right to the walls, They brought their sappers and the sappers dig under the walls and light them on fire. And they begin the long siege of Jerusalem. At first, people are rationed and and rations begin to dwindle and old people begin to die and young people become emaciated. And eventually the Babylonians come in and in one fell swoop, the stench of death covers Jerusalem. Bodies lay strewn about, orphaned children screaming for their mothers, mothers holding their dead children, men slaughtered, fires in every quarter. Somehow, somehow large rocks have split because of heat. The stench of death wafts through the city. And then there's this guy walking down the street. He stops every once in a while to look. You can hear him moaning and weeping. He sits down and cries out to God in angry and mournful tones. It's Jeremiah. It's Jeremiah, and the city you see in your imagination is Jerusalem destroyed. The Temple Mount, It's gone. The temple that Solomon built, sacked. The people of God have been fed to barbarians. The Babylonians are looting the temple of God. Jeremiah, in his mourning, you can tell he's struggling with questions. Where is God today? How can Yahweh be trusted? What hope is there for Israel? There is a great struggle with God's sovereign rule and the pain he's experiencing. Jeremiah wonders, if we are his people, why didn't God keep us from this pain? Without trying too hard. All of us, if we just rolled the tape back just on this year, not all years, but just this year, if we rolled the tape back and we'd see where our marriages faltered, We'd see where our bodies became sick or are still sick. We'd see where our friends left us, where our families passed away, where our sin caught up with us. We'd see that our lives are sometimes or mostly punctuated with the pain and the brokenness of life. That is to say, the questions Jeremiah asks are not so foreign to us. Where is God? How can this God be trusted? How can we have any hope? How do we 
How do we cultivate spiritual resiliency? How do we somehow cultivate hope in the ruins of our lives? You know, we talk about kids and uh, we say, kids are resilient. They're like made of rubber. And they are, thank God. But resiliency requires scars, requires trouble, something to get over, something to trust God with. How do we develop spiritual resiliency? How do we, how do we walk through with hope? Hardship. So what I want to do is I want to introduce the book of Lamentations today. We're still in this series, Every Book for All of Life, where we take one book of the Bible and kind of march through it a little bit. I want to talk about lament, because uh, this is, it's called Lamentations. Uh, it is, I mean, in the Hebrew, uh, the, the word uh, for, really the, the Hebrew word for lament, uh, the title for it is, ah! And it became Lamentations. It's a little bit better. But the Hebrew, the Hebrew word or exclamation for sorrow is this book. And so I want to, I'm going to look at one passage. Normally what we'll do in, a, in, in, in one of these sermons is we'll kind of march through and, and do a diff, couple different passages. I want to focus on the most famous passage of this book, uh, Lamentations 3, 22 through 24. I want to give us two reasons for hope. In hardship, that is, it says, as Jeremiah sits in the rubble, he calls on two things that cultivate hope. And then I want to give one application for us to remember uh, by the end of our sermon today. So who wrote the book of Lamentations? It is, is written, there's no, there's no author, it doesn't say Jeremiah wrote this, but all church tradition and Hebrew tradition ascribes it to Jeremiah. And I, I think that's reasonable. The book of Lamentations, I think, is probably written by Jeremiah. When was it written? Likely 585 or 586 B.C. In the, just off the heels of Babylon coming in and destroying all of Jerusalem just after it. Uh, Jerusalem is just a, a, a husk of itself. It is, it is streets of sorrow. This is Jerusalem. And I think probably Jeremiah wrote it sometime in this time. Uh, the, the captives, there's this, there's this time before when, uh, when Jerusalem is sacked and then when the captives are taken out, and I think we're kind of in between this, where there is some unease. No one's really sure what's happening other than, uh, other than the Babylonians have taken control. And I think this is the context in which Lamentations is probably written. What is the structure of Lamentations? It's really interesting. Chapters 1, 2, 3, 4 are all an acrostic Hebrew poetry. And so like Psalm 119 uh, has a stanza for every, alpha, for every letter in the alphabet, Lamentations is ordered like that from, uh, from chapters 1 through 4. Chapter 5 is a free-for-all. It is chaos in poetry. But everything is pretty ordered, chapter 1 through 4. Uh, chapter 1 being the suffering of Jerusalem, then God's anger in, uh, in uh, chapter 2, uh, Jeremiah's sorrow, chapter 3, then more of God's anger uh, in chapter 4, and then Jeremiah's prayer. And, and this is a corporate prayer. It, there is some sense in which uh, there's, you, you feel like Lamentations is trying to bring order to the chaos of suffering and the chaos of sorrow, that, that there is some organization in it uh, by the way, the, the poetry is kind of laid out and you get to chapter five and it's a hot mess of sorrow. And it is, it is just emotion and unanswered questions. The book of Lamentations ends with a large question mark. It says, restore us, O God, unless you've rejected us, period. That's Lamentations. It doesn't follow a historical flow. 
It is Jeremiah's reaction to what, is, what he's seeing. So why is lamentation so important? And I think, I think really lamentation is important because it teaches us to trust God's character in the midst of pain. That, that similar, similar to Job, uh, Job puts God's, God's character up high, and so does Lamentations, and says, listen, this is how you navigate through pain. Job and Jerusalem, they're not, they're not the same thing. Job's, Job's suffering was brought upon him, and uh, Jerusalem's, Jerusalem was brought upon because of their punishment, because of God's punishment of them. And so lamentation teaches us that if you trust in other sources of uh, in pain, friends, worldly wisdom, coping mechanisms, denial, addictions, all these other things that we run to relatively quickly, numbing things, walking through hardship would be much more difficult. And we know that walking through hardship uh, can often bring distrust of God. I'm in pain, so God must not be faithful. They're in pain, so God must not be faithful, whatever it is. That lamentation points us, really at the center of the book, back to God's character as the navigating, the true north of all our suffering. So what is lament? I wanna, uh, lament is a style of prayer, a style of worship that we see a bunch in the Psalms. And this whole book is a lament. It is, it is a weeping over and accounting for the brokenness. And so I say this, like when we, lament, lament Psalms and lamentations show us, and this is important, men and women uh, of, a, of an American church where, where prosperity and goodness and, uh, are, are really high values and suffering uh, is, is always negative, that like, it reminds us that suffering in silence is not a biblical virtue. The lamentations proves to us that suffering in silence is not a Christian virtue. That just grinning and bearing it, that just pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, by just ignoring it, is not a biblical virtue. That in fact, in fact, walking in lament is a biblical and Christ-like thing. So three ways, or three, uh, three kind of categories of lament. Uh, they are prayers that process pain. That is to say that lament give us voice, they give us the freedom to navigate the hard sadness, frustration, anger, and sorrow. Like lament gives voice to the deep part of our soul that often goes muzzled in brokenness. That often we, we might be hesitant to share our pain or sorrow with others or with God. Lament gives us that outlet. And what I love about lament is lament prayers require us to say this place is broken. Lament requires you to acknowledge that all will be well, but it's not well right now. Lament requires you to see the brokenness. Like it is a really powerful tool. There are also prayers of perplexion. Lament offers us a way to express our confusion with God. They say, why did this happen? Where were you? Or like the psalmist says, are you even awake up there? Do you see your people? How could you let this happen over here? Where were you on this day? I thought you'd protect us. Lament gives us voice for all these deep questions about who God is. Lament helps us live in the tension of the not yet of all redemption. That is, Jesus is coming and there will be a point where sorrow and, and, and brokenness fade away. And yet we have those promises now and we live in this, this brokenness and so the not yet of the future lies in our minds 
While we wait now in the brokenness, lament helps us express our frustration, our confusion with God's sovereign rule and the presence of evil and heartache still. Three, lament our prayers of protest. This I, I thought was the most interesting take. This is from the Bible Project guys. And actually, I, I, of, of all of the things they had to say about lament, I thought this one was the most poignant, the one that kind of struck me. Because I, uh, I, think, I think we think of lament prayers are, as these really sorrowful, like, and they are. And yet, every time you pray a lament prayer, it is a prayer of protest. It's a prayer that says, this is not how it should be. It's prayers that don't pull punches about sin and brokenness. Prayers that plead with God to intervene. Prayers of faithful opposition to evil. We're saying lament is where you say, Satan, shove it. God is coming. This is not the end of the story. The best is yet to come. And, and, and by God's grace, I'll get there. Those promises are good. And lament gives us the voice to protest against the despair and hopelessness that Satan wants to weave into our hearts over every part of our lives. It's a protest against despair, hopelessness, evil, sorrow, abuse, Satan's rule. I guess what I'm saying is you could, you could hear, and like I'm a, I'm a dude and so I hear lamentations and I think weeping and weakness, this is the exact opposite of that. It is men and women who see brokenness and call on the hound of heaven to move heaven and earth, to bring redemption now. Lament, prayers are prayers of strength. Grab your copies of God's word. Open up to Lamentations chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 through 20. I think it helps to get a sense of Jeremiah and his position before we get to Jeremiah 21, 22, 23, 24. But I want you to just read along or you can listen. Listen to how Jeremiah talks. And when he says he in this passage, he's talking about God, that God has brought this to Jeremiah. And we know from the book of Jeremiah that Israel did not repent and God said, listen, if you don't repent, I'm going to bring you hardship. So when Jeremiah is, 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 is in this position, he is, because he's part of corporate Israel, experiencing the judgment of Israel from God. Verse 1. I am a man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged me and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in the darkness like the dead of long ago. He walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He has turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He has bent, in, he has bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become a laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness and sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel. He has made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. And so has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say 
my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Lament. Then verse 21. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Verse 22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Those verses are so familiar. Almost, almost to the point of, you know, we just see them on cups and mugs and t-shirts or on Instagram posts or like whatever your version of trite is. But this is the man who said, I have forgotten what happiness is, so I say my endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. There's something deeply profound about the transition he made in two verses. My soul continually remembers it, verse 20, and is bowed down within me, but... It's a contrast, if you study the word of God, but is a, is a contrast, he's moving from negative to positive, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. So briefly, two reasons for hope in hardship, two reasons for hope and hardship from these verses, 22 and 23 and 24. Two reasons for hope. Number one, God's great faithfulness. God's great Faithfulness is, is reason for hope, number one. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. There's a poetic progression here uh, that, that when he says great is your faithfulness, every, every line, all the three lines before that are leading up to that statement. In other words, you could put that statement, great is your faithfulness, and then go, here's why. In other words, Jeremiah says, here's three qualities that make your faithfulness great. Three ways, three reasons that I can say your faithfulness is great. Jeremiah is not writing this from a place of privilege. He's not writing this from a place of joy. He's writing this in the scarred, burned, stenched streets of Jerusalem. Jeremiah's view of God hasn't changed even though his circumstances have. And so he gives us this three-sided view or these three qualities of God's faithfulness. I'm gonna kind of run through them. There is love that never stops. The key word here is ongoing. Say that with me ongoing. We're going to give you three words uh, that kind of describes God's faithfulness. It is love that never stops. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Uh, that, that phrase, the steadfast love, uh, is the Hebrew word hesed, uh, which means covenant or loyal love. That is to say that there is something, uh, the steadfast love uh, the Lord has for Israel is, is contractual, is covenantal. He says, I've loved you, I've entered into this covenant, you've entered into this covenant with me, and because of that, I will love you, not out of emotion, but out of sheer force of will. Now that sounds a lot more transactional than it is, but that word, hesed love, is the type of love that doesn't run from anything. It's a type of love that can't be shirked off by any brokenness, can't be removed by any rebellion. It is love based on the act of the will and not emotion. For the Israelites, it meant that in this moment, God's promise to still bring them a Messiah was true. And that God's promise to never destroy them was true. God's love for the Israelites, even in the midst of this Babylonian, uh, this Babylonian destroy, destruction, 
God's love was still full of restraint. He didn't fully destroy Israel. It was full of justice. He brought them what they deserved. It was full of promise because he protected them. If God's love for Israel, his covenant love, had slowed or slacked for a moment, Israel wouldn't exist. God's faithfulness to them was not only in discipline but protecting them. There was, when I was growing up, uh, uh, there were the battery wars between Duracell and Energizer, right? And there was a little bunny. I'm really gonna date myself because it wasn't on TikTok or Instagram, so I'm like losing half the audience. But Energizer has this bunny, and, uh, and, and you'd put the bunny in there, and the commercial would be, he'd be going and going and going and going, and it was to show how long it would go, and then the next commercial, a year later, the bunny would still be going and going and going and going. This is the idea here, uh, that there is, God's love for Israel is like us, or is like that for Israel, and is like that for us. They say, it is just ongoing. It just goes and goes and goes, not because you've earned it, but because God generates it for you every day, all day, now and forever. That his love, his steadfast love, his covenant love, his hesed love for you never ends. There will not be a moment in your life. There will not be a moment in eternity where that love waxes or wanes or slows or becomes small in any way for you ever. Consider these passages, Psalm 89, 33. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. Or 2 Timothy 2, 13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. That is his steadfast love means he never lets go of those he loves. He is committed to those that he loves. He is committed to those that he saves. He never lets go. He never wavers. He never forgets. It's ongoing forever. This is great news that whatever comes in our lives, whatever we deserve, whatever hardship, whatever at the end of our rope is God holding the rope. That he never lets go, always loves for us forever. Three-sided love, view of God's faithfulness, love that never stops is ongoing. And mercies then never come to an end. They are inexhaustible. Say that with me, inexhaustible. That his mercies never come to an end is a measure of extent. Measure of extent. Mercies, uh, it's it's translated in the English as well as compassion. Uh, And and Hebrew, probably compassion is probably more natural, the meaning there. And what that, it's the Hebrew word for womb or deepest part of the body, that there is something within God that looks at you and me and he looks down gently and, and lovingly like a father does his son or daughter and is deeply moved with compassion for us. It's gut level love. That's what this idea, this compassion, where we've got this this covenant love where God makes and says, I'm choosing you not because of anything you've done, but because I love you, that is followed up, right, with this love that is deeply emotional, deeply visceral to God, that you are not just an obligation, but that he loves you, loves you deeply. He is predisposed to caring for us. His heart is bubbling and overflowing like a fountain with concern. He can't keep in the love for you. He can't. He can't. In Israel, a lot of their streams and waters were seasonal. And so uh, the seasons would change and the lakes and the river would dry up in certain parts. God's love is the opposite of that. The springs always run. The water's always fresh. It's inexhaustible. God's compassion and mercy for us isn't seasonal, it isn't sparse, and it isn't in short supply. It is inexhaustible. It is like there is a fount from heaven 
that flows down forever for those he loves in every part of our lives to bring mercy and compassion, to see us, to love us. His compassion is poured out from heaven in a never-ending torrent of love. His compassion for our situation, for our hardship, for our diagnosis, for our struggle with sin, for our marriage. He sees all of what we need and his mercy flows freely all day, every day for eternity. Like this is some of the greatest, some of the greatest truth that in the darkest moments of our life, it rains down mercy. That in our deepest sorrow, compassion flows from heaven unending. In our most discouraged moments, his compassion drenches our souls. He does not run out of compassion. His supply of mercy is never out of stock. It flows from heaven, inexhaustible for Christians who are exhausted in darkness. Love that never stops, it's ongoing. Mercies that never come to an end, it's inexhaustible. And they're new. They are new every morning, fresh. Say that with me, fresh, fresh. Ongoing, inexhaustible, and fresh. They are new every morning. Yesterday I woke up and I was making biscuits and gravy for the fam. And uh, yeah, it's a bunch of... (laughs) That's some business gravy, I guess. Okay. And I, I was getting the milk uh, or like the heavy cream or whatever it was, and I was looking at the expiration date, and it seemed close because it was close. <laughs> it seemed close. So you, do, you, you, you don't trust it. You got to sniff it, right? You sniff it, it, it sniffed fine. I don't sniff much since COVID, but so I was fine with it. Like, <laughs> poured it in and it worked. I said, God's mercy doesn't have an expiration date does not grow old for you. It is new and fresh every morning. When the dawn breaks, so do new mercies. When the sun rises, so do, so do new mercies. In other words, there's no day old mercy in the covenant with God. There is no stale mercy. There is no manager special, almost expired mercy. There is no bottom shelf generic bad cereal mercy. There is no stored in a tub for 20 years in survivor shelter mercy. That's for you in Montana. Like there's like, His mercy is new and fresh every day. It's the good stuff. It's the stuff we would only buy if someone gave us a gift certificate to that particular store. It's the good stuff from the top shelf behind him and there is no end to it. It is new and fresh every morning. It is fresh, vibrant for us. It is, okay, you wanna know what this looks like? This is Israel wandering in the desert and every morning they wake up and have manna and quail. That's what that is. His mercies are new. There's food, there's quail, there's, you're, not, you're not consumed today. God's mercy or his compassion and action was seen in his provision. We think about like compassion, God's compassion and mercy for us. I'm gonna uh, read off a few things this means for us. God acts mercifully or compassionately towards us. He provides for us. He binds us up when we're hurt. He protects us from harm. He restrains our sin. He carries us when we're limp. He prods us when we need it. He forgives us when we need it. He holds us when we need it. The point is, God's steadfast love can feel disconnected and obligatory, but his mercies are the heart of God flowing for his people freely, inexhaustibly, and fresh every moment of every day to make sure you have exactly what you need to thrive in his life. The lie, the lie is that God is distant and and disconnected from us and he just loves us because he, he promised to. And so we've got this guy who we can never please, who's never happy with us, who doesn't love us except because he, he promised to us. But the truth is God loves you. Why? Because he loves you. Like what a simple truth. You could not earn it, man. 
You couldn't do it. He looked down and said, you know what? Like, I just love you, and I love you, and I love you, and I'm going to keep doing that forever. Faithfulness knows no end. He knows what we need because he's close by. He knows what we need because he can hear us. And this is why Jeremiah calls God's faithfulness what? Great. The magnitude of his faithfulness. We're just barely at the tip of the iceberg of his faithfulness. God promised to love Israel, and he did. God never left Israel. He never turned his back on them. He never forsook them. He was steadfast. His mercies were inexhaustible, and his compassions were fresh every morning. That same faithfulness is, is here for those of us who are in Christ Jesus this morning. Hebrews 13, 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In other words, Jesus is faithfulness in the flesh. He is love embodied. He is compassion in person. Jesus' compassion never wavers. He, his faithfulness never runs out. His mercy never wanes. And this is so critical. Listen, when because life, look, if you're in here and you say, man, I, like, I don't need to lament today. Tomorrow's coming. Like, you may need to. You may need to. This, like, you say, well, I don't know if this is for me. I, at some point, the waves of life are going to get to the foundations of who you are. And you're going to need something that is sure and steady and stays the same and is the same towards you today, tomorrow, and for eternity. And that is God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When life is unpredictable, Jesus is predictable. Jesus is reliable when the world isn't. He's trustworthy when life isn't. He's faithful when nothing else is. God's great faithfulness is the primary reason for hope in any hardship. That he is who he said he would be and he will do what he says he will do. And that means we can hope even in the not yet of future redemption while we suffer now and wait for his return. Two reasons for hope and hardship. Number one is God's great faithfulness. The second is God's great presence. God's great presence. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is my portion. This is a this is a kind of a foreign word and portion in some translations, inheritance in some other translations. And that totally doesn't really, that really doesn't even grab at, it's hard for us to understand what that means, is what I'm saying. He's grabbing an idea from the chapter, chapter 18 in Numbers where God is dividing up the land of the Israelites and he's saying uh, the tribe of Dan and the tribe of Reuben and these tribes go here and here and here and he gets to the tribe of Levi who are gonna be the priests of the nation and he says, you don't get any land. Let me read this, verse 20, chapter 18. And the Lord said to Aaron who was uh, the head of the tribe of the Levites, you shall have no inheritance in their land. That is to say, you Levites, uh, everyone else has inheritance in the land, you don't. Neither shall you have any portion among them, okay. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. I mean, if you're Aaron, kind of seems like a bad deal. I mean, it's not. Obviously, you get God. It's not a bad deal. Everyone else gets land. The Lord says, you are my portion. You are my portion. That, that word, portion, inheritance, really, uh, it's, it means, it really says, you're all I have. Yahweh, you're all I have. God, you're all I have. And so what he's saying is, I'm all you're ever going to need, tribe of Levi. I'm all you're going to ever have. I'm all you're ever going to need. You're going to depend on me like no other tribe in the nation, and you're going to have me like no other tribe in the nation. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to watch over you because you are the priests for these people. Lamentations 3, uh, 24. If you were to rephrase it with that, with that Hebrew word, that Hebrew kind of metaphor, it is, the Lord is all I have. Lord is all I have. 
That actually seems more true for Jeremiah. His friends and family are dead. His personal reputation is pretty much destroyed. Jerusalem is destroyed. There's death everywhere, threats everywhere. His future is uncertain. Israel's future is uncertain. The present is dangerous. The Lord is all I have. There's no other power to help, no other power to protect him, no other wisdom to offer, no other knowledge to use. The Lord is all I have, he says. At the end of his rope, there is God holding on to the end of the rope. And Jeremiah is in a, in a really particular uh, precarious position. He has no authority with the Babylonians, no respect with the Israelites, nothing but death and uncertainty around him. He couldn't fight back if he wanted. He couldn't change the situation. The Lord is all I have. The Lord is all I have. You sometimes pray for people to hit rock bottom. You know, like this phrase, they hit rock bottom. What do we mean by that? We mean they tried to live life their way. And the results of their choices led them to a scenario that was so broken and so helpless that they had no other choice but to accept help from something or someone. They were powerless. They were weak and exposed. Israel is at rock bottom. Jeremiah is at rock bottom. And so he says, listen, the Lord is my only hope. He's my only hope of protection, my only hope of provision, my only hope uh, at all. He's the only one. Without him, I will perish. The Lord is all I have. God was with Jeremiah when he called him. God was with Jeremiah while they put him in the stocks. God was with Jeremiah as they put him in the cisterns. God was with Jeremiah as the Babylonians came. God was with Jeremiah as he went into captivity. God never left Jeremiah. The Lord is all I have. The Lord is all I have. We often confuse our sorrow and our brokenness. And, and the Lord becomes the third or fourth thing that we really, really hope can deliver us. If I get this medicine, or if I get this counseling, or if I get this, or this, or this, or this. Jeremiah sums it up. The Lord is all I have. All Jeremiah had was the creator of the universe. He had the God of the armies in heaven. He had the supreme healer, the righteous judge, the mighty warrior, and the faithfulest. When Jeremiah lost everything, he still had the only thing that ever mattered. That he was stripped down, had nothing, he was completely exposed, and he had the only thing that ever mattered. God. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says this. For all the promises of God find their yes in him and Jesus. That is why it is through him, Jesus, that we utter our amen to God for his glory. In other words, what we're saying is, like, God, God, his presence was with Jeremiah. And in the New Testament, we see the presence of God fully fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That he is fully God and fully man. He is the presence of God in the flesh. Matthew 28, 20 says this. At the very end of the Gospel of Matthew, he says to his disciples, he says, go and preach the gospel. Go to the far edges of the earth. Endure troubles and hardships and prepare and be ready and behold I am with you until the end of the age in the end all we've ever needed is Jesus in the end all we ever have is Jesus you may lose a family member but you'll never lose Jesus cancer may take your life but it can't take Jesus the world may burn your life down around you and you'll feel like Jeremiah cursed and afflicted by God but Jesus has never left you and in that moment, you will know this truth. When all you have left is Jesus, you have more than you need. This is the truth of, of this book. That if he is faithful, 
if he is who he says he is, when all, when all the dominoes fall and all life gets reorganized, if all I have is Jesus, that's all I've ever needed. And all you have left is Jesus, you have more than you need. If you don't have food, you have the one who sent men and quail. If you don't have the money, you have the one with the cattle on a thousand hills. If you are sick, you have the one who can heal you. If you're struggling with sin, you have the one who can free the captives. If your marriage is broken, you have the one who can bring redemption. If you're headed into eternity, you have the one who died and rose from the grave to walk you and to usher you into eternal life. Jesus is always with you, so you can say, Jesus is all I have. And so we get to follow Jesus into and through the valley. This week I was out hunting uh, with some friends and not a lot of finding, but a lot of hunting. And we were in a place south of Drummond, I guess, and uh, uh, one and a half, two feet of snow or something like that. And we're all kind of walking in a line and doing hunting things, I don't know. And what I learned pretty quickly is that if I would just like get behind my buddy who was in front of me, a ton easier to walk in the snow. It was like drafting behind him. Why? Because he breaks up the snow, path is a little bit looser, I don't have to raise my legs as high, I'm not as agile as I once was a year ago. It's easier to follow them because they broke everything up. When we follow Jesus, it's like that. We walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He's traversed it. He knows the path. He knows the, the crooks and uh, he knows all of the, the turns and all of the danger. If we follow him through the valley, it'll still be hard, but it won't be impossible. Why? He's been there before. He's walking in front of us. If we commit to walking behind him at the end, we will end on the other side of the valley at some point and we'll find our rest. Jesus is all we have, so let us trust him is what Jeremiah says. Two reasons for hope and hardship. God's great faithfulness and God's great presence. So uh, an application today. Um, and the application is something to remember, not something to do. Uh, Jeremiah needed to remember something. He didn't need to do anything. He just needed to remember who God was. And so I wanna, I wanna grab this quote from a guy named Joseph Biley, I think. His name is Joseph Biley. It's don't forget in the dark what you learned in the light. Like preachers for the last 50 years have pawned this off of their own. It's not mine. Some dude named Joseph. But it's profound. There's a tendency when the dark cloak of suffering and loneliness and, and hardship kind of envelops our life, uh, darkness can be descend so quickly that it can be uh, disorienting. It covers our marriage, our health, our future, our finances, our sin struggles, our whole life. And it's in this disorienting darkness where Satan's whispers, which were whispers in the light, become louder shouts in the darkness. And he says, see, I told you he doesn't care. See, I told you, he's not strong enough. He doesn't love you. He's not faithful. He's not good. Don't forget in the darkness what you learn in the light. You can almost hear the words of Jeremiah saying, he loves you. He's never gonna stop. His mercies are new. They're never gonna stop. He refreshes you. You get the good stuff. He is faithful. He is good. He is great. He is powerful. He's merciful. Don't stop following Jesus. 
Don't stop walking in the valley. Don't stop worshiping in the valley. Keep believing in Jesus. Keep believing in redemption. And one day, one day, as you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you will arrive at the precipice of eternity with Jesus right by your side. You'll look back and you'll see how far you've come and you'll look back into eternal rest and to see what God has brought you to. You will not come to that moment having regretted believing in him. You will not come to that moment having regretted giving him your life. You will not come to that moment having regretted trusting him with your brokenness, your sorrow, your pain, and your whole lives. God is faithful and greatly so. Let's pray. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Your mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. God, would you make these words new and fresh on our hearts? Would you tattoo them on our souls? Emblazon them in our minds? So that when the darkness comes, when hardship <laughs> assails, when we are enveloped in the cold blanket of brokenness that this world offers, would we remember these words, great is your faithfulness, and just take the next step and put one foot in front of the other, following your son Jesus to and through the valley. Give us the strength we need to follow you. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon podcast from Church at the Gates. For more information about our church or to connect with us about what you've just heard, please visit churchinmissoula.com.